Some rural hospitals are located in areas so remote there's no other life-saving medical care around for miles. These rural hospitals are often facing some of the most challenging financial circumstances due to the number of patients they serve and the socioeconomics in their communities. So how do many of these hospitals strengthen their financial footing? Well, Rachel, with smart strategies, careful planning, and sometimes critical access status. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hodshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to Episode 2 of Rural Health Rising. I'm Gigi Hodshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Director of Marketing and Development. Today we're going to be talking about critical access hospitals, which are a specific and unique segment of the rural health market within the broader healthcare industry. Now, Rachel, you have some experience with critical access hospitals, right? I do, JJ. I actually worked for a critical access hospital in southern Indiana about five to six years ago, and it was part of a larger statewide academic health system. But today I'm excited because we are going to be talking with a very special guest who runs an independent critical access hospital, which I imagine is very different than what I experienced. Yes. And today we are joined by Tim Johnson, Chief Executive Officer of Eaton Rapids Medical Center in Eaton Rapids, Michigan. It's about an hour north of where we are here in Hillsdale. And so I want to welcome my good friend to uh, Rural Health Rising. Welcome, Tim. Hey, thanks, JJ. And uh, thanks for having me on. Tim, why don't we get started with you just telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, yeah, my background's a little bit different. Uh, I, um, I, I'm not a, a clinician in any way. I'm an accountant, actually. I, I got an accounting degree from Michigan State University, and then I started my career auditing banks. I worked for KPMG, a large accounting firm. And then from there, I took a job at, uh, it was my first healthcare job, actually. I took a job for with Blue Cross and Blue Shield in Michigan, auditing hospitals around the state. Uh, and then with the birth of my son, I didn't want to be traveling anymore. So I took a job at, um, at the time was Ingham Medical, which is now part of the McLaren system. Uh, I went back to school, got a, a master's degree in healthcare administration from Western Michigan. And then uh, eventually I uh, took a job as CFO in Eaton Rapids. And then uh, when our CEO retired, I became CEO hospital. Wow, Tim, what a transition from uh, accountant to a CEO. Wow, what a journey. And don't you find that uh, the relationship is interrelated at times? Yeah, I like to tell people I'm a recovering accountant. That's what I tell people. (laughs) Yes, indeed, indeed. (laughs) But it is, but it does help out having some of that financial background. It sure does. So now that we've established who you are and what you do, uh, let's start with the why. And uh, we do this on every episode of Rural Health Rising, so we get to know our guests just a little bit better. Um, So, Tim, what is your why? In other words, why do you do what you do? What motivates you? And what gets you out of bed in the morning? You know, to me, it's all about people and taking care of people. And that's what really drives me. You know, it's interesting. My first hospital job, uh, my, my office was on the second floor of the Stanley Wing at Ingham Medical. On the first floor... It was the cancer unit. And every day coming in and out of my office, I would have to walk through the waiting room where the people waited to get their chemotherapy. And that was a game changer for me. Um, It just changed how I view what I did 
and why I do it. And I, and I really believe that's that's why I'm in this. You know, I, I again, I'm an accountant. Um, I don't care for people. Um, but what I do, <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't want me, you know, doing any suturing or anything. But um, but the way I see my role is I care for the people that care for people. And that's what I do. Now, you've been at Eaton Rapids for 20 years. You were the CFO for 10 years, and now you've been the CEO for 10 years. So tell us a little bit more about Eaton Rapids. Tell us about your hospital, its history, and your team. Well, Eaton Rapids is a community of 5,000 people. It's um, it's really a, a farming community, and we're in Eaton County. Uh, we're between Lansing and Jackson. Uh, our hospital is a little small critical access hospital or 20 beds, uh, but we have an average daily census of between two and three. Uh, we do have a emergency room with about, we do about 10,000 visits a year, and we do about a thousand surgeries a year. Excellent. So Tim, today we're here to talk about critical access hospitals because they in fact play a critical role in the world of rural healthcare. Uh, to start, can you explain to our listeners um, who may not know, what is critical access? What does it mean? What is a critical access hospital? How does it differ from community hospitals or systems? Okay, well, there's um, two ways that Medicare pays hospitals. There's the um, PPS, they call it, pr- Prospective Payment System. And, and that's how they started off paying hospitals on um, that is basically based on a DRG. So it's based on whatever service the patient needed. So um, let's say, for example, somebody has a hip replacement and it could be, and I'm making these numbers up, it could be $5,000 they pay for a hip replacement. Um, and then, you know, 10 years ago, it started to change a little bit, but for years, everybody just got paid that same amount per hip. Really, they paid it like it was a commodity is how Medicare paid for procedures. Mm-hmm. Sure. and. What you have now, now they've adjusted a little bit for quality and they adjust it for the wage index in your area and a few other things, but basically it's paid like a commodity. And what you have is small little hospitals. Um, it, we just don't have the economies of scale that the big urban systems have where that with that large economy of scale, they can make money at that commodity rate where, where tiny little hospitals could not. And luckily Medicare recognized that and they came up with the critical access program where they reimburse the small hospitals, our cost for Medicare patients. So um, we do get um, our fully reimbursed. What? Well, yeah, I'd like to say fully because they throw out some costs that they say aren't related. But for the most part, it's um, our cost for treating those patients. And then our community in Eaton Rapids, we're a, an, an older community. So, for example, last month, 50% of our business was Medicare. Wow. So... And I think in people that aren't in healthcare wouldn't understand because they would think, well, you only got reimbursed your cost. That's awful. What, what business would just want to get covered their costs? But um, prior to critical access status, we lost a lot of money on every Medicare patient we treated. Um, and now at least we're made whole on those Medicare patients. Very interesting, Tim. So how long have you been uh, at Eaton Rapids as a critical access hospital? So in other words, has it always been a critical access hospital? No, we were able to convert to a critical access hospital after I'd been here for a few years, okay. a couple of years. So yeah. prior to that, you had obviously been part of the system as a non-for-profit community hospital. 
that right under the PPS payment system. So if you could tell our listeners what what really changed in in did was it just the funding issue that changed between uh, going from a community hospital to a critical access or have you noticed any changes in the care you provide or any of the opportunities that are given to the community? Uh, yeah, obviously there's well now we're in such a situation, again, as our community got older, more people went to Medicare, we wouldn't exist without the critical access status. We, we just would not be here. Um, but again, with Medicare 50% of our business, if we were losing that much money on all of our Medicare business, we would just close. Um, but it does, um, you know, provide being critical access then gives us the ability to offer services that, to our community that we would just not have been able to offer otherwise. Um, sure. Even if we could still survive somehow. So how do you think you look at your work differently than someone like JJ, who leads a rural hospital that's not critical access? You know, I, it's, um, I would say we're more similar. Uh, and, and I think we both have the, the major challenge of how do you provide the best care possible with the limited resources that we have? Uh, it, it is a challenge, and it's a challenge for both of us. Tim, what do you think hospitals like ours, independent facilities that are not critical access, can learn from hospital like yours, uh, also independent but operating as critical access? Uh, you know, that's a good question. I think we both have the opportunity to learn from each other, and I, we, we face a lot of very similar challenges, uh, and I think um, just have that opportunity to uh, learn from each other and how we operate. So, JJ, I want to ask you sort of the same question. What do you think hospitals like Eaton Rapids can learn from hospitals like Hillsdale? And you guys actually together have already started engaging in some of that um, working together in collaboration, right? Well, don't steal the thunder now, yes. Rachel. What? <laughs> but uh, absolutely. When, when I uh, took over the CEO post here, uh, one of my first outreach opportunities was to Tim and uh, get a chance to uh, meet with Tim and get to know him a little bit better and learn a little bit more about uh, the critical access industry. Um, but we we have shared, and our similarities are that we are in communities where Medicare and Medicaid seem to be the biggest payers. Uh, and our commercial insurance represents a very small value of those patients that come into our facility. And so the the types of issues that we face in rural communities typically are, you know, impoverished areas, um, where you have uh, limited access to public transportation, uh, you have individuals that are uh, higher dependency on you know government funded programs, and that becomes a challenge for whether it's critical access or community hospital for our reimbursement models. You know, Tim and I unfortunately do not have negotiating power to go to Blue Cross Blue Shield or other major health plans and say, "Hey, this is how much we want." Typically, we're told what they're going to give us, and that's very difficult to make it on that type of a margin. And for us, you know, before sequestration, our profit margin was about 2%. Sequestration came, we lost 2%, and our profit margin became zero. And that's very difficult to invest back in your infrastructures, in your community, if you're not making a profit. And so while we're technically not for profit, you have to exist in order to facilitate, you know, programs, and we have to look at building a capacity within our hospital and equipment and those type of things, you have to you have to have income, you have to have revenue. And so many of the programs that Tim and I uh, share, you know, in similarity would be, you know, providing these services at a community benefit. Uh, 
And so when you look at, you know, mental health services, you look at obstetrics, you look at some of those programs, those are financial losses for community hospitals. Uh, and unfortunately, we have to make up that difference somewhere. And so uh, we share a lot of those similarities. And to scale, you know, we're smaller in nature, serving a rural community that's oftentimes economically, uh, you know, depressed. And we have to provide the health care for that community. There are not, you know, groves of hospitals running to those communities. Uh, while they like to outsource and pick up those patient population, you know, we are left there in the middle providing their day-to-day care. So that really makes me think of another question, because you mentioned the negotiating power with Blue Cross Blue Shield. And Tim, you at one point worked for Blue Cross Blue Shield. So you kind of worked on the other side of this as the insurer, as one of the payers, um, as opposed to being one of the healthcare providers or payees. So what do you think you have taken from that experience that helps you in your role, both when you were CFO and now as CEO, having been on the other side of it? Well, definitely, I have a the the reimbursement knowledge that came with working with a payer was was very beneficial. Um, but again, um, that was you know, maybe some knowledge and experience on that side. But like like JJ says, you know, really we have limited negotiating power with the blues. They they are the. Um, I like to tell people that um, everybody that works in healthcare in the state of Michigan really works for Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Michigan is how that works. Yeah. We do say that, don't we? <laughs> right. And Michigan is somewhat unique compared to some of the states around us because there aren't quite as many insurers. Blue Cross, Blue Shield, to my knowledge and understanding, has more of the market in Michigan than different um, insurers in some of the states around us, like in Indiana, mm-hmm. right? I know mm-hmm. we've talked about that sure. before. Yes. Um, now, JJ also talked about profit margins. And so for us in, you know, what would you say, JJ, is the the average profit margin for a rural hospital that is independent but is not critical access? I mean, we're talking zero, zero. is the it's, goal. It's right? zero. It's zero or below. Right. Uh, right. It's now. rare to be anything over zero. Well, right. Sure. Yeah. I mean, in today's, uh, you know, unfortunately, in today's healthcare times, you know, it's very difficult for rural hospitals to uh, to make it. In fact, Rachel, we've shared on this program before. Since 2010, over 130 rural hospitals in America have closed, and it is anticipated that in the next year and a half to two years, 200 to 300 other hospitals are at risk. And so we, Tim and I, face this every day. You know, we're looking at competition in the marketplace, and we believe competition is great. It's fun. It's fair. It's it's wonderful in the right environment. Um, but we're oftentimes, you know, encroached upon in our uh, counties and in our communities by uh, large systems, and we don't have the same negotiating power that large systems have. And we oftentimes do not have all the modalities and you know all the service lines that large systems have. So you know, we're self reliant in rural areas like Hillsdale, where the nearest healthcare, uh, major healthcare, is 45 minutes to an hour and a half away, um, we have to be resilient in what we offer to our communities. And, and you know, Tim, one of the things that uh, we have often talked about was just the challenges of small rural health in general, and it becomes more and more difficult. Um, do you feel that critical access status uh, is something that we should push for among other hospitals? Or do you think that that's that there could be a better safety net? Now, now I know that um, you know you've had the chance to administer both at uh, a, a non-critical access and a critical access. But uh, for a guy like me who's looking at you know uh, the challenges of rural health, you know is is the safety net 
a critical access status? Because I think you would agree that right now it's it's being debated in Congress, uh, the issue of allowing more critical access hospitals in America. And right now we have a restriction about the number of critical access hospitals we can have. Um, I believe that it's a 25-mile radius requirement. I believe that's still in existence. So if I have a hospital 25 miles or closer to me, I would never qualify for critical access. But to the question to you is, are there certain programs I cannot have if I'm a critical access hospital? Not programs per se, but I know that's limited to 25 beds, that you can't be bigger than 25 beds. And they definitely, if, if they can't raise that, what they should look at is what um, what's known as the tweener hospitals where you fall. Um, because we do have that safety net for the critical access hospitals, the very small hospitals. And then again, the large hospitals have that economy of scale, so they can make money at that commodity price. But they need to do something for the hospitals like yours that are in between. You know, Tim, and I heard that expression for the first time on a call last week, you know, tweeners. And uh, I thought, you know, that's a great description for us, for Hillsdale. Uh, We are between you, you know, a critical access, smaller, under 25 beds, and the big system that has scale. And how do we make it? And often it's it's this tweener hospital that gets squeezed out in in healthcare because we don't have the economies of scale and we don't have the uplift from the government. And so we're trying to make that way in a community where the nearest hospital is under 25 miles, so we would never qualify to become a critical access. And the way that we do it is we watch our margin very closely. And part of what we do is on a daily basis, we're looking at our staffing ratios, ensuring that the number of patients that come in have the appropriate number of staff, but that we're not overstaffed. And we're looking at all of our cost and looking at our equipment. And it becomes in in small rural health, as you know, Tim, it becomes a daily daily task to look at these things. It's not just weekly. Big systems can look at it yearly, right? You and I, I, I think, how often are you looking at your numbers? Um, well, we definitely, uh, we, monthly for sure. But we are, um, when you're as small as we are, we know who's in the hospital and who isn't and how, um, you know, how many surgeries we're doing today and how many inpatients there are. And um, every night, we get, we um, every morning, we take a look at at an email to see how many ED patients we had that night. Um, so yeah, you, we have to constantly be looking at that. And, and we see ours, what, twice a day? I think we get a staffing summary twice a day every day. So we see the full census and all the staffing in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you guys are, are in a similar boat. Mm-hmm. One question I had too about the margin is, with it being 0%, if we're talking about the tweener hospitals in rural, is is that also the same with critical access? Are these different? Is the difference in payment with Medicare is it helping you get anywhere beyond the 0% margin, or is it just giving you the security that you can meet the 0% margin? Um, no, it, it depends. Uh, there are critical access hospitals in the state that are, are really struggling right now. Mm-hmm. Um, we're fortunate. We've done a, a, a very good job of managing our hospital that um, we've had a, a small margin the last few years. Um, but I, I have personal friends at, at critical access hospitals that you know, they, they, they wonder how they're going to make payroll each two weeks and where the cash is going to come to meet the next payroll. Um, it's, it's, it can be very difficult. So um, it's kind of all over the board. 
And Rachel, I think the best way to, to manage that is we have to manage our cost every day. And so as we're always looking at uh, programs and putting together performas and you know where our loss is going to be, we make some very cognizant decisions in, in rural healthcare, and that is, do we keep our behavioral health unit open knowing that it loses hundreds of thousands of dollars a year? And the answer to that is yes, we have to find the resources elsewhere. Why? It's a community benefit. We are, you know, someone has to take care of that patient, right, Tim? And we mm-hmm. have to make sure that we're available to take care of that patient. Otherwise, the care for that patient may be hours away in rural communities. Um, and so we have to look at this. And so when we look at the margin, we're looking at those costs every day. We have to look at, you know, are we overstaffed in this area? Or are we overstaffed in this area? One of the things that our listeners may not know, Rachel, is that Michigan was one of the states uh, in our nation that eliminated um, elective surgeries during the shutdown of COVID. And Tim, I believe you suffered just like I did. Our loss was $10 million. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. What was? Can you explain some of your losses during yeah. the COVID shutdown? And what what can small hospitals like ours do to rebound from situations like this? Yeah, in uh, April and May, we we were almost at an eighty percent loss of revenue. Um, it's it was substantial. Um, luckily, we, you know we were able to take advantage of the PPP program, which helped us out immensely, and then some other um, CARES fund funding, the Provider Relief Fund. Um, that really helped us cover some of those expenses so we could stay open. Tim, I would think that uh, we could we could tell our listeners that we do a tremendous amount of advocacy work with our congressional leaders and state leaders. And um, I will say for this episode that uh, we have friends like Congressman Tim Wahlberg, uh, who has been very responsive to you and I. He's both uh, in our district uh, and has been a fighter for small rural health. And uh, we did we did take advantage of some of those programs, but we had a lot of questions, didn't we? In some oh, yeah. of those programs, I'm 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 not sure they're all answered yet either. They're not, Tim. <laughs> we we are getting uh, conflicting information almost weekly. Mm-hmm. Um, that's very yeah. concerning to us in terms of are we going to meet that margin? So um, we we advocate. Uh, Rachel, every every day we're you know CEOs in our role. You know, as Tim is uh, an accountant at heart, and you know he's watching over their books, he's watching over their personnel, he's watching over their community. Uh, then we have to advocate. Then we have to be visionaries, right? We have to ensure that we're looking at new programs and revenue streams, and um, it is very daunting because oftentimes we have a very very small. A bench of individuals that are, you know, administrators. And I'm going to put Tim on the spot and ask him, but how many administrators, Tim, do you have at your hospital? Well, um, our, our C-suite, we have about four or five. Four or um, five. Is what we're at. But, exactly. Um, and then we have about 25 um, people that we consider our leaders, and those are our department managers. So, yeah, it's, it is a very small bench. So, so that pales in comparison, Rachel, to major hospitals that have corporate presidents, vice presidents, assistants, assistants to the presidents, assistants to the assistants of the presidents. Layers and, and layers I am not kidding and layers you, of teams. Yeah. Directors. And by the time that, uh, you know, it gets to the top, it's it's been filtered by 40 different people. Um, Tim, I think you can attest to this. We get calls every day about our operations. We get calls about making decisions right now, today, real time that impacts our revenue, that impacts our operations, that impacts our patient safety. And we're making those decisions every day. And, and there's a part of me that thinks that that's a strength of rural health, that, you know, we don't have to go through 800 channels, that if we want to implement a change, we can do it immediately. 
and I reflect upon some of the uh, quality scores. Your quality scores are great. Uh, Tim, our quality scores are great, and we can make sustainable changes immediately in hand washing and in some of those core measures that it's a little more difficult for major systems. So what's been your experience with that implementing change in small uh, healthcare? You're right. In, In some ways, it's easier because, again, we are smaller, and so we can be a little more nimble. But in some ways... Uh, like Rachel said, you know, when you get a short bench, that makes it hard because we don't when, you know, we're, we're constantly changing regulations when we hit uh, and then the in- information requests from anybody and everybody, uh, the alphabet soup in Washington, D.C. And uh, you're, they're constantly wanting more information and we just don't have the bodies to to generate some of this stuff. It It, it makes it a challenge. And it's similar, I think, too, with things like COVID, with there's a lot of different regulations and mandates that have come down throughout the process of the pandemic as our state and local and national governments are trying to handle this. And I don't know about you guys, but we don't have a public affairs or, or a legal right. affairs department. So, you know, mm-hmm. we're we're I'm kind of uh, have become the de facto check all the rules and make sure we know what the new stuff is. And, you know, we just as a team, we have to fill in and fill those gaps and jump in and work together. And sharing text messages at 10 o'clock at night between each other to address some of the changes that are happening. Uh, that's that's where rural health is. Right. And, and that's where we yep. have to be in our lane. Right. But in a way, that makes it fun working in rural health because we all wear many hats. We do. We have to. Yep. Absolutely. So speaking of critical access versus the tweener hospitals or the other rural hospitals that don't have critical access status, there are, there are challenges clearly to both that some are different and a lot of them overlap. So, Tim, from your perspective, because um, one of the things that we will talk about a lot on Rural Health Rising is what is a better future state for rural health care and for how we operate? Um, obviously, one of the challenges is the reimbursement structure, you know, healthcare is unique in the fact that we don't actually set our own prices per se. We don't get to decide exactly what we get paid for the services that we provide. Um, and and critical access, that is one of the differences is how that all works. So with, you know, running a critical access hospital, if you were to dream up the ideal framework or policy or program to keep rural hospitals open and thriving in their communities, of any size, but still in that rural space, what elements of the critical access model would you say, oh, we have to include this if we're going to create the ideal rural healthcare framework? Yeah, I, w- I would ab- agree that um, first that critical access hospital reimbursement is vital. And then, I, and, and then expand it to see, you know, personally, I would like to see us spend more in programs where it comes to wellness for patients. You know, we, we talk about our healthcare system, but really what we have is a sick care system that the government pays you for, for taking care of sick people. We don't get paid to keep people healthy and happy. Um, so I would like to see it expanded in that way, the whole, um, and more in the realm of population health of the community, um, outreach in the community. And then um, we've, we've got to get some sort of support. I'm, I'm sure you have the same problems we do in trying to recruit staff to a rural area. Um, coming out of medical school right now, uh, we have millennial physicians. And I think it's just a trend with millennials is I think they tend to like to live in big cities with public transportation. And, um, you know, maybe that'll change a little with COVID. We'll have to see. But um, they, and I think what millennials tend to pick a city and then move there and then look for a job. They don't 
not, not like previous generations where they would look for a job and then move to that job. So that makes it that much harder to try to recruit physicians. So that this ideal program would have to have something that encourage physicians to come out to rural areas and other RNs. And, and Tim, we're facing a shortage that we know, both in uh, primary care, specialty care, and even, uh, you know, we hear of shortages in nursing. You know, so now we're in Absolutely. this ultra competitive environment, and it's oftentimes, as you've indicated, difficult to recruit to rule. Um, but but maybe there's some opportunities there for us to, in advocacy, work with uh, institutions, schools, medical schools, you know, to offer some type of uplifts or opportunities to come to rural communities. There are some programs right now that we participate in where loan forgiveness for college debt uh, would be would be forgiven if they come to a rural area and stay. Um, I think we need to expand programs like that to attract providers to the rural communities. I think that's critical. Um, but one of the things that I want to uh, touch upon lastly is, um, you know, the economies that small rural health provide to their communities. You know, we are the second largest employer, Tim, in Hillsdale uh, proper. And in the county, we're the third largest employer. And out of almost 50,000 people, to be the third largest employer says a lot. And to have a health system like ours that provides the most jobs in our community uh, at, at such a struggling time as this, uh, to potentially look at closures around the United States of other rural hospitals who are the primary drivers of economies in their communities, that's concerning to me. Um, in your particular community, um, are you one of the largest employers? Yeah, we're the second largest. So you are the, the second largest. Mm-hmm. And you provide, yep, you, obviously, infrastructure as the second largest. And could you imagine, Tim, of the devastation that would rock our communities if we were to lose our local health care? Absolutely. You know, um, a, a good economy is good for the hospital, and then the hospital is good for a good economy in your community. And then that's one of the things that uh, I had one of the real estate agents in our town point out to me, too, that when people are looking for community to move to, said the first they look for schools, then they look for health care. Um, so it's vital for the property values in your area to have a hospital as well. And I've often heard that and we, we've watched it uh, in fruition here, uh, you know, where we are providing that stability and not only in our communities, um, but also, you know, seeing some of that come back to uh, Hillsdale County and to your communities and, and to be able to attract individuals to uh, colleges and universities that are nearby. We have Hillsdale College. And one of the things that parents are looking for is how close is healthcare, And uh, do we want to send our student to a college where healthcare is an hour away? And so the third element then is industry and manufacturing, you know, for a risk management program and occupational health. You know, no one wants to build a new factory and a new business and a pipeline uh, into that community if healthcare is an hour away. Um, so, so it's good for all of those areas, and we support each other in those, you know, whether it's education, manufacturing, business, and industry. But the critical nature of rural health care is not only the economies that it provides back to the communities, but the care that we give to our patients who are much different demographics than those that are in major cities. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think that that is a calling. And so, Tim, I, I think you've hit your why uh, right on the head. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that what you witnessed walking through, you know, the Cancer Institute and seeing the devastation of those lives, you know, of people who are hurting, who needed help, that's why we're in this industry and this business. And 
you know, often people criticize us and they like to point out to two or three executives in the United States and healthcare will make lots of money. That's not us, Tim. Uh, we are individuals yeah. that are giving back to our communities uh, each and every day, and we're impacting lives and we're changing lives. And I want to commend you for the work that you've done in Eaton Rapids. Um, I, my goodness, you've got you've got quite uh, a facility. It's beautiful. Uh, you are, you know, providing those services to a community that needs it the most, and you're linking up in partnership with economic development and other places. And I've enjoyed our friendship so far, and I look forward to uh, many years to come of collaboration Absolutely. of how we can right. build rural health in America and sustain our local economies, but also provide great care to our patients who need it the most. So thank you so much for being part of our program today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to get to this part of the show, Tim. Because on every single episode, we are going to feature a story from one of our patients. Today, we have a story from Steve, who was really struggling with his sleep. He wasn't getting much sleep at all, uh, maybe a few minutes at a time throughout the night, waking up frequently. And it was uh, impacting his mood, his relationships, and his day-to-day -day life, to the point where he was even falling asleep while driving. Very dangerous. This is Steve's story. What I was having troubles with was sleeping. I would sleep for 15 or 20 minutes at a time. Was at a point that I was actually uh, falling asleep while I was driving. The testing process here at the hospital was as comfortable as you could make something like that. When I did wake up in the morning after I'd been on the machine, uh, I was floored because I didn't think I had been sleeping that long because I, I hadn't slept that long in, in over a year. I feel like a human being today and I didn't before. Wow. You know, I got to interview Steve for this segment. And what I really appreciate about this story is how central to his life this particular medical issue was. It affected his every day and his life changed drastically after he got the care he needed right here at Hillsdale Hospital. And he was such a joy to interview because he was very deeply connected to what was the actual true impact that that experience had on him beyond now he's able to sleep better. But what does that actually mean for his life being able to sleep better? Um, and this is really just one of the most powerful stories that we've heard um, from a patient who has uh, benefited from our sleep lab. And, you know, a lot of rural hospitals don't have a sleep lab. So we're fortunate that we get to offer that in our community. It was a great testimonial, Rachel. I agree. And before we close, Tim, we would like to do a fun segment that we do at the end of each of our show with all of our guests. So we want to know, what is your most unique rural experience or one of your favorite memories that is unique to rural life? Yeah, there's a lot. You know, it's, um, it's always fun when you walk out of the hospital front door and there's a tractor parked in the parking lot. It's always, um, <laughs> it's always kind of fun, but it happens every so often. But I think my favorite story is... Uh, we had uh, our maintenance guy was going to paint our radiology department and he was up there on a Friday and he started painting and then he reached the end of the day on Friday and he went home and uh, the radiology staff that was on that weekend saw the paint and the equipment and stuff and in between doing x-rays they finished painting the department themselves wow. which wow. is just I, I don't think you see that in those bar, large urban hospitals, that kind of, you know, we're all in this together. And that's how everybody views it is we're just one team. Uh, that's it says a lot about our culture. It sure does. That's fantastic. You have a great system there, Tim. Thank you. And you're doing a great job down there, JJ. Thank you. And that concludes today's episode. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll talk about quality and safety in rural health care. Is it worse? Is it better? How do rural hospitals provide great care? 
with fewer resources. We'll be interviewing an expert in the area, and you don't want to miss it. So be sure to tune in to the next episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, hosted by J.J. Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering by Kenji Ulmer. Special thanks to today's guest, Tim Johnson, CEO of Eaton Rapids Medical Center in Eaton Rapids, Michigan. For more interviews like this and more information, visit RuralHealthRising.com.